from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a filmmaker that blends low-budget resources with high-quality production. His films are visual experiences with minimal dialogue and maximal impact. He's joining me today to talk about his recent film, In the Dark, as well as his previous and upcoming work. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Spencer Keller. Spencer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 17th day of June 2023. I came across your short film In the Dark as I was browsing on Alter one day and was really impressed with the emotion you conveyed with a single shot, not to mention the horror of the overall story. I was amazed at how you were able to pack a glass full of dark narrative into a stiff shot of abject terror. So I'm excited to have you on the show today. Yeah, excited to be here. Well, so I hope it's not too much of a spoiler if I talk about the first scene of the movie, but basically a man murders a woman, then climbs up on a chair and hangs himself. And the thing I liked about that shot was how you showed the man climb up on the chair and then pan down to the woman's face as she's laying on the floor dead. And instead of showing the man stepping off the chair and hanging, you just see the chair fall into the shot, obscuring the woman's face, which I think was a way more powerful way to do that than if you had showed a very graphic, brutal scene of the man actually hanging by his neck. So you wrote as well as directed the film. So when you wrote the beginning scene, did you envision the way it would be shot or is writing and directing two separate processes for you? And how exactly does the writing and the directing of the film germinate in your mind? Um, well, I'm glad the intro was effective for you. Usually I think of both writing and directing kind of at the same time in the writing process, because especially doing lower budget stuff, I just can't really afford to write something that I don't know for sure I can pull off. And so as far as like the hanging scene, I actually went through quite a few other options in my head for like how I could communicate that this thing was transferring to the chair. Mm -hmm. And a friend suggested the hanging thing. And I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to do a, <laughs> you know, aggressive hanging scene. But the more I thought about it, I was like, I feel like that's the way to do it. And 
I think it would be more effective to show as little as possible. And it was also practically helpful. Like it works in both ways because one, I don't show it, but people know what's going on. So I don't have to be overly graphic. But two, it saves me money on resources and Mm -hmm. stunts and that sort of thing. So honestly, post-production was the main hassle of that scene because when you have such a long take of someone acting like they're not alive anymore, (laughs) there's always a little bit of breathing, a little bit of blinking. And so it's, you know, a little bit of VFX to fix that. But um, once I decided the hanging scene was the way to go with it, then I kind of had a visual idea of how I wanted to approach it. Awesome. Yeah, I imagine if you had done it to where the man actually hangs, you would require some sort of a stunt man, I'm assuming, because it's not something you just want to pull off like amateur. And uh, I imagine there's probably some rules like you'd have to have a medic on standby in case something happened, all kinds of stuff. I can't even imagine. Yeah. But um, the way the chair fell, I was trying to think of something to compare it to. It was kind of like the guillotine dropping. Everybody knows or thinks they know what's about to happen. And when that chair falls, it's like, yep, scene, it's over. That's all she wrote. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Very effective. And that was kind of, that's good. That was hopefully the idea. And especially in the sound design, I know I wanted like that big Mm. when it hit the ground. And the hard part with that, though, was matching it up in the thrift store scene that we shot as well. We didn't have a lot of time at that location Mm. for that opening scene. I put the camera on its side and I'm like, I hope this works out. And then we didn't have time at the thrift store location either. So it was just like quickly looking at the frame on my phone and trying to match it up and that sort of thing. But it seemed to work out. Was that uh, done during business hours? Did you have to (laughs) be in and out or? (laughs) Well, we were supposed to have like an hour and a half before they opened, which it's not a super long scene and it's like a super tiny cruise. So I'm like, we can make that work. But uh (laughs) They showed up like 30 minutes before they open. And so uh, (laughs) before people got there, we had like 30 minutes to set up and get it. And so we went over our time a little bit. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was definitely a time crunch. Everyone was just watching me stress out in real time. (laughs) Yeah, it's weird. The time of a scene compared to how long it actually takes to shoot it effectively is just bizarre. Like, I think I never thought about it before I started interviewing filmmakers. And I'm sure the average person doesn't think about like how long scenes take to shoot, how long all the post-production takes. Like, I mean, I'm in most cases, doesn't the post-production take longer than the production of the film itself? Yeah, we shot it in November. I work full time, so you don't dedicate so much time to it. But I was editing it in most of my free time from like November to January. So it takes a little while. Mm-hmm. Well, this film does have a fair amount of dialogue, but a lot of it is emotion being conveyed through intense visuals. Do you find you can create a more complete story with visuals rather than dialogue in a short film? Well, I'm always going to prefer visuals over dialogue if I can. I write out of necessity, you know, I haven't found like that writing partner where we super click or that sort of thing. It's kind of been like, I want to make movies, so I have to write a movie to make. And um, (laughs) I definitely prefer to tell anything visually that I can tell visually and rely on dialogue when I have to or when it makes sense in the scene. Like people would be like, 
why is nobody speaking here? Mm-hmm. But yeah, generally, the more I can tell visually, the better. And especially with short form films, great dialogue has subtext. And it's hard to get a lot of like subtext in or have a lot of thematic ground built up enough to have subtext in such a short period of time. So then dialogue becomes more practical. And um, I mean, even in like the most recent short film, In the Dark, it's more practical. Like she's on the phone with somebody, talks about the price of the chair, talks about being on the fence about getting it. Mm -hmm. She's on the phone with the 911 operator, those sorts of things. But I feel like it's harder to go deep in like a dialogue conversation in a short form thing and it be as effective as you're wanting it to be. Mm-hmm. So if you had your ideal situation as far as filmmaking, would you rather just be the director, like have a script, you know, someone hands you a script and you're in charge of making this movie. And so it's all about your artistic vision. Um, I've gone back and forth on that. That's what I thought when I started filmmaking. And now I just, I don't know if I'm just maybe a lazy writer. Maybe that's it. (laughs) But the thing is, I know that I do have pretty strong opinions about, you know, story points, how the dialogue flows, what happens here, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so the further I've gotten in my filmmaking journey, I'm slowly considering the fact that maybe I'm supposed to be a writer director, not just a director. But I'm definitely open to collaborating with other writers and stuff that just hasn't happened yet. Are you a fan of auteurs, like maybe not necessarily a fan of their work, but a fan of somebody like Robert Rodriguez or Quentin Tarantino or Gaspar Noé, the guys that write, edit, score, direct, like it's the entire film is their creative baby? Um, I certainly respect those artists. I think as an artist, like you could make the same thing as someone else, but if someone else makes it, it's always going to look better when they do it. Mm-hmm. It's just the artist mindset of like, when it's your hands doing the work, that's all you see. And so for me, I feel like working with a director of photography, working with a composer, all those help capitalize on what people are really good at. And I'm just kind of being the glue, making sure it's a cohesive vision. Mm-hmm. And then two, it's like, I think I'm happier with the end product because it doesn't have me written all over it. Uh So, and that's a lot of what I've done is like, I mean, with the most recent short film, I wrote it, I directed it, I shot it, I edited it. So I've done it, but as I've done it, I'm like, the more people that want to get involved, the better. Yeah, I was, um, I forget who I was talking to about it, but they were saying how, you know, mastery, it takes like 10 years or 10,000 hours to become a master of something. So the more you dilute your specialty, the more you kind of lose things. Like if you're a jack of all trades, each individual thing's going to kind of suffer. And I can see like, I can see like writer director being so closely intertwined that that could almost be considered one thing. But I do get what you're saying. Like the more you add on, like if you've got separate people hyper-focused on that one thing, you're going to get the best of each thing all combined together. And like you said, obviously the director is always supervising and monitoring the overall artistic vision. So yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. 
So the villain in this movie was terrifying. And I don't know, he kind of, for some reason, for me anyway, he gave this vibe of like this blue collar working man that maybe had a bit of a drinking problem and lost his mind. Is there a backstory to this man and the woman he murders? And if so, can you tell us about it? And if it's meant to just be left up to the imagination of the viewer, what is some of the feedback you've gotten with regard to his backstory? Like, has anybody messaged you or anybody that you know personally kind of filled in the blanks to his backstory and asked you if that was close or not? Well, no one's sat down and, you know, written any theories out for his backstory, but um, I did talk about it a little bit with the actor Bill Reed Jr., who did a great job. Mm-hmm. You definitely got the right impression about who he was, but we didn't set anything in stone like this has to be his backstory. This is exactly what happened. But we mostly started from where his descent kind of started and where the possession started. So we didn't go super far back with as far as backstory, but we did talk about it a little bit. But like you seem to have gotten, most people seem to get the right vibe that I was going for, which is like blue collar guy kind of gone off the rails, possessed by something. So when you say possessed by something, do you mean like supernatural or like some sort of psychotic break? Um, I mean, I guess you could say both, but supernatural as well, because the film is kind of like a cycle, you know, mm-hmm. in the beginning, whatever spirit is possessing him. He kills all the life around him and he kills himself. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back as a spirit because he's attached to the chair. <laughs> I'm kind of like breaking down the whole film for you. I don't know if you want to put this whole thing in there. But um, <laughs> so the spirit is attached to the chair and he gets the chair and he gets possessed by the spirit. And now she doesn't have any life around her, but she kills herself. And then she goes down and she comes back. And she has black eyes and that sort of thing. So that's the supernatural aspect of it is uh, the possession Okay. I guess that's where the breakdown for me was. I thought he was the genesis of it. Like for whatever reason, he spaced out and did a murder suicide. And then as a result of that, that kind of was taken into the chair for some reason. But you're saying something existed beforehand that caused him Mm -hmm. to do that. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. That's kind of the hooded figure in that void that she goes down to. Okay. I gotcha. And so, yeah, that's kind of like what I think. I wanted to do to make it a little bit unique as far as possession stories go is just follow her down as she becomes possessed and see like what that could possibly look like. Okay. Gotcha. Well, your short film, The Aftermath, was like a swift one-two boxing combination that lands you flat on your ass. I'm a big fan of minimalism in artistic media. And I know keeping things contained has got to be way more budget friendly, but are you a fan of minimalism in art as well as life? And if so, can you give us some examples? I wouldn't call myself like a minimalist in regular life, but as far as telling the story visually with dialogue and everything as well, I try and be as minimal as possible and communicate what I'm trying to communicate especially with something like the aftermath. That's like the bare bones of what I needed to get across the story of what I was trying to do, even in coverage and that sort of thing. It was just a couple shots that I was cutting back and forth between. Mm -hmm. All right. 
Well, the title, The Aftermath, just the title itself is very compelling because that phrase usually indicates the result of something bad. doesn't inherently mean that, but usually it's something bad, possibly a disaster. So did the idea for the film evolve from the title or vice versa? And if neither, how did the idea for the story come to you? So this idea, there's a short film I released before this called Night Visit. And in that film, the main character watches sort of like a disturbing kind of like you call it a snuff film or something on the TV. And so we had to shoot that snuff film in an actual like hotel. And I had worked with the actress before, Mackenzie Wynn, and I knew she wanted speaking roles for her reel. And I felt bad because <laughs> I was like, hey, I got a role for you, but there's no words. <laughs> But I was like, I'll write a scene that we can shoot. And so I I wrote something that takes place in that same storyline. But it didn't make sense to put a night visit. So I was like, what would the aftermath of that killing scene look like? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wrote kind of a phone call conversation. And that way we could shoot it pretty quickly on the same day that we were shooting the killing scene that was shown on the TV in Night Visit. Okay, so in Night Visit... What the police officer watches in the home of what he thinks, I think, is an elderly woman is actually her Mm -hmm. suffocating her significant other, whoever. Yeah. Is that what? Okay. Okay. I did not put two and two together. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, it's kind of hard to tell on the TV because it's very grainy. All the grain and stuff. Yeah. But I, only a couple people have kind of been like, oh, I see how it carries over. Plus, because Aftermath hasn't gotten as much viewership as Night Visit has. But yeah, I thought it was kind of a cool standalone little scene Mm -hmm. to post. And it kind of wrote itself because you have that reveal at the end and everything. And so if I could just write a conversation that keeps you kind of guessing what that reveal is going to be, what's actually happened, then people might stick around. Nice. All these Easter eggs that I had no idea existed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, speaking of your film that we've been alluding to, Night Visit, was a very surreal, abstract short film. So was the film meant to be metaphorical in any way? And if so, what were you attempting to bring to light or showcase? Um, Night Visit was an interesting one. It wasn't, wasn't necessarily meant to be metaphorical. It started from... Like I have a group of friends and we try to hang out once a week. And for a while in the winter when we didn't have anything to do, we started playing this horror game. And I'm trying to remember the name. I think it's called Visage. Mm -hmm. It's the horror game. And there's just this ambience of like the rain outside. And you get like a phone call from this old lady in the beginning. And I was like, I should try and capture a similar feeling, a similar tone. Are we talking about a video game or what kind of? Yeah, we're talking about video. Okay, gotcha. That was the genesis of this film. It's like, let me try and see what something like that would look like. And the idea came pretty quick. Night Visit has been an interesting film, though, because it's been very mixed. Like people either really like it or they really don't like it, which is the first <laughs> of, of that kind for my films where, um, you know, I'd show it to friends and some friends would be like, oh, that was cool. And some would be like, huh. <laughs> and uh, so... Yeah, it wasn't necessarily meant to be metaphorical. It's meant to be mostly a situation that's interested me and the tonality 
and ambience associated with it was interesting. And I wanted to try and write something where I would be able to attempt to kind of capture that. Well, it seemed to be very meta. I watched someone watch someone watch someone murder someone. Then I watched that same person watch the person that they watched watch murder someone murder someone themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you envision that dynamic affecting the viewer? Um, That's a great summary there. (laughs) It's funny when you put it like that, it sounds pretty complex (laughs) in my In my brain, it wasn't really. I just thought about the creepy idea of this entity that possesses people and captures it and kind of stores it. Mixing supernatural and analog, I think, is always interesting. It's funny that you say that, though, because you can always have blindsides as a creative. And I think that was probably one of them, as I underestimated how complex or confusing the film might be to viewers. (laughs) And then once we started screening it to people, I was like, oh, I did not anticipate this. But, you know, it's just the way it goes sometimes. So you're obviously thinking about the viewer most of the time during the edit, but you can never really know until you start showing it to people. And so that was that was more of a surprise of like, okay, this is not as clear as I thought it was. (laughs) And so it was definitely interesting for me because it was the first one where like I was watching it and people really didn't like it or they really liked it. And I couldn't put my finger on, like usually with films, it's like, okay, well, I would do this differently next time. But with this one, I'm like, how do I improve on this and make sure it doesn't happen again? Or I make sure I'm on the same page with everybody. And I think my diagnosis for Night Visit was that I think the concept wasn't quite strong enough maybe to justify the lack of amazing scares and the scares weren't next level enough to justify a weaker concept. And so for a lot of people kind of found itself in this middle ground. And some people might totally like it, you know, you might listen to this podcast and go watch it and you have no problem with it. And that's awesome, you know. But for me, I had to diagnose it, I had to be like, okay, what do I think is kind of some of the reasoning behind why people feel this way about it? Yeah, my thought was, I was wondering if I guess an example would be Gaspar Noé using I could be wrong. I think this might be sort of an urban legend, but I wouldn't put it past him using, I don't know if it's theta waves or delta waves hidden in the soundtrack to irreversible, which are supposed to make you feel really anxious and uneasy. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe the very meta progression of the film is supposed to kind of put you in this surreal state of mind and generate this feeling of unease. That's what I was wondering about. And uh, also you said the mix of supernatural with analog. And I didn't think about that. They are using a camcorder. They're not using digital. So that was intentional to use analog. Yeah. Yeah. I like the idea of like this old TV with a stack of VHS tapes crowded around it just appearing. Like the idea was that whoever this creepy entity is that's kind of possessing people and recording the events that take place isn't hunkered down somewhere. It's like they go where they want to go. And so I like the idea of mixing things that you wouldn't immediately assume should be mixed together. And uh, so analog and supernatural seemed kind of like a cool way to approach it. 
Yeah, and the grainy, staticky picture that only analog can produce. You're not going to get that from digital is way creepier, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, your short film Blood Debt is tragic, and I'm not sure if I can think of a more tragic situation. And it seemed to be mainly grief horror. Was the film meant to horrify the viewer by the tragedy itself, or was it by the random indifferent chaos of the world in which this tragedy occurred? And what do you think it is that people enjoy about this type of horror? Um, I wanted to approach a horror short film in a different way. Kind of the first short film that I did that got a lot of views was called She Knows, and that's kind of your basic horror monster short film. I mean, there's a reason behind it in that film, but I wanted to try something that had a little bit more drama, a little bit more thematic depth. And so you'll find, especially with me, that like tone and ambience is part of the genesis of most of my ideas. And so there was a tone and ambience that I wanted to capture. And so that's kind of where the idea for Blood Debt came from is a lot of times in horror, like in my short film, She Knows, it's like, You know, you ran somebody over and you hit it, you know, it's going to come back and get you. But I wanted to do something where the protagonist did what he thought was right. He was doing what he thought he needed to do to protect his family and made a mistake, but it was totally unintentional. And I just wanted to switch it up and see if something like that could still be effective because it also introduced this grief drama that I could explore. And so, yeah, that's kind of where the genesis of that came from. Well, without giving away the end of the film, it seems that by the protagonist rejecting help in the form of therapy, he has, in a sense, turned against himself, either metaphorically or literally. So, as you said, there was no malicious intent by what he did. He was trying to protect his family. But then, in the end, it was almost like he was turning his back on himself for some reason. So was this something you were trying to convey in the film? And if it's not too personal, do you have any experience with someone, you know, having issues that refuse to seek help? Um, well, thankfully I don't have anything too personal to draw from for a story like this, but the idea was that because he won't seek help, he's letting his own mind deteriorate and, just kind of fester in the hatred he has for himself instead of being able to admit that what happened, he never intended and he tried to do the right thing. So that's kind of what I try to communicate with the ending. I know it gets blooded as one of those that kind of had mixed reactions as well, because when you get psychological, dark. people tend to be <laughs> yeah, so it's, dark. It's dark. It's funny that that film feels weightier than something like She Knows, Because technically, and she knows, it's like, this dude is messed up. You know what I mean? Mm. He ran somebody over and hid the body, and now he's trying to ignore it and that sort of thing. Like, that's really messed up. Yeah. And this is a dad who made a mistake that lost him his daughter. But at his heart, he's still a guy trying to do the right Mm. thing. But it feels, I think, weightier because of that. Because there's no, like, the audience isn't going, you deserve this. Yeah. It's like just watching somebody kind of spiral down. So I think that's why it's pretty dark. Well, yeah, and it kind of highlights like this 
this random chaotic nature of the universe that it occurred in. It's like you want to think that as long as you do the right thing, everything will be fine. <laughs> but in this yeah, case, it's yeah. like, no, things are far from fucking fine, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, so your film Blackwood is a bit of a one-two boxing combo, just like the aftermath. There's a little bit of misdirection, so you're caught off guard. There are multiple scenes where the stage is set and the viewers left to fill in the blanks as well as the action. Did you yourself know where the action led when you wrote this or did you leave it nebulous enough that even you could be wrong? And if so, what do you tell people that ask you for specific details? Um, well, this short film was written as I forget what the contest was, but it was like a four minute proof of concept contest. Okay. And so I wrote it as a proof of concept. You may have to explain that to me. <laughs> oh, so a proof of concept short film is basically a short film that communicates the tone and the potential for something longer. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And so, so I made it for this contest. And so I went back and shot the intro after it didn't get into the contest. So I was like, I feel like I need to flesh it out more before I release it. And so that beginning train scene and the bike scene, we shot that a couple months later. But yeah, this one, I did more than any other short film I've done. I knew how I would expand it. But I think, ironically, this is the one that it just feels very rushed. Like I'm trying to get a lot of info out and trying to kind of get a lot of thematic info out quickly. And I think that's probably why it suffered in the short form. But I did know where I wanted it to end when I began writing. It was just kind of an interesting creative box that was put in, which is like four minute proof of concept. Let me try and get all the info out that I think I need to get out. So that's kind of where I was approaching that from. Okay. Well, that kind of answers my next question, because, you know, obviously it's left open with the possibility of a continuation existing. So um, have you ever thought about pitching to a production company to turn one of your short films into a full length feature? Um, I've definitely thought about it. I mean, making a feature film would always be the goal. That's that's been my goal, starting out doing short films. And if the opportunity came up to pitch any of my short films as a full length feature, then I would be interested. But yeah, I haven't necessarily written a full-length version of any of the short films I've released as of yet. A couple I feel like I could adapt easier than others. But yeah, I would definitely love to make a feature-length film, but it's got to be working with the right people, the right company at the right time, that sort of thing. If you... Do you think it's possible, and I'm speaking out of total ignorance, maybe it's been done, I'm just not aware of it, but do you think it's possible to raise enough money from something like a Kickstarter to uh, make a full-length feature? I mean, I know like super big names that have already been financed by big production companies have done that. But if you're like an indie filmmaker, do you think like how much money would you even have to raise to where you think you could make an effective feature-length film? Um, that's a good question. I feel like with my current audience and like the scope of viewership that I have, probably not going to be super realistic to raise enough money to make a feature film how I'd want to make it. But like I've seen someone like, I think his name is Chris Stuckman. 
He's a film reviewer on YouTube. He has over a million subscribers. I don't think he's released short films, but he's been talking about films for years. And then he made a Kickstarter for a horror film, full length film that mm-hmm. he wants to make. And I think it was funded with like over a million dollars to make it. So, Damn. yeah, it's definitely possible. <laughs> I don't know if I have the audience for that right now. And I think that would stress me out <laughs> putting all that together. <laughs> I, I kind of would like other people to do that so I can focus on on the film rather than trying to ask people for money, which is not my favorite thing to do. So, yeah. But yeah, I've definitely considered lots of different options because I definitely do want to step into the feature film world pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Well, in your short film, She Knows, which we've alluded to, we see a young man that's covered up an incident that he should not have. And I, we've already mentioned it. So I guess I can say that he struck a young woman with his vehicle and in an attempt to not have his life disrupted by any legal issues or anything of that nature, he hid the body. So... A few of your films involve people that end up in unfortunate situations by accident. Are you attempting to play on the audience's empathy to invoke fear? Uh, and what do you find compelling about this particular scenario? So like empathy is in, well, you know, I've driven one or two times where I've had a little bit too much to drink. I probably shouldn't have been driving and, uh, you know, that whole particular scenario. Like, I don't know what the uh, inherent cause of this guy hitting this woman in the movie was, but Mm -hmm. Um, what do you find compelling about this particular scenario? Well, I definitely, especially with protagonists, I don't want them to be so like vile and evil that nobody can connect with them. Mm -hmm. Even though this dude, the main guy in She Knows is obviously messed up because he's willing to do that. But I still wanted it to be based in reality enough that like the audience isn't just checking out like, who is this dude? I hope he gets totally, you know, Mm. but also I like starting late in the story and starting with something that makes everybody sit back in their seats and surprise of like, wow, we're going here and we're going here pretty quick. Yeah. (laughs) Just right off the bat here. Yeah. And (laughs) slap to the face. Yeah, that was definitely the first part of She Knows that I thought of was that opening scene and kind of starting off with like the placid scenery, the nature, and then cutting to like this messed up scene. And the funny thing about She Knows is that that was the one film that I didn't really write. It was like, I'm trying to remember, I think we were opening up a little bit after that first shutdown of COVID and I was getting angsty because I hadn't made anything. And then I was like making lunch and it just like all of it hit me and I just wrote it down on my notes app and you couldn't get a crew together or anything at that time. So I was just sent a text to my friend and I was like, Hey, you want to, <laughs> you want to be in a movie? And, uh, he was like, sure. He didn't know what he was doing until he got there. And then I told him what the story was. So it was very like, I quote unquote wrote it and shot it in like three weeks and then edited it in like, a few weeks as well and then posted it and it's funny i was like i didn't even spend time writing this one and this is the one that uh, <laughs> got all the views so yeah 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 i was uh i wanted to compliment you on the special effects for that film and so i was thrilled when i saw that you had a behind the scenes feature 
I thought it was really cool how you did all this during COVID with, I know you said you, was it the protagonist was a friend of yours, you said? Yeah. 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 And then you had family helping you as well, right? Yeah. No, I, my sister's the girl, the monster. <laughs> yeah, and I, rem- um, I remember your description of her. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Just like a brother. <laughs> yeah. And my little brother... He was waving his hands in front of the softbox, so that way we could create a little flicker effect from the TV and stuff. It was a a true in the heart of COVID production. Uh huh. Yeah, and you did all the post production yourself, correct? Uh, yeah. So that was all me. Although I worked with Josh, who played the protagonist, because he does scoring as well. He's a composer. Oh, okay, gotcha. And so we kind of worked together on that soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah, post-production really interests me. So I was nerding out watching the, uh, I guess it was your friend that was scoring, doing the sound design with Logic Pro and the special effects with After Effects. I'd never heard of that program before. And I was wondering how you pulled that off. Yeah. It was really interesting to watch. So I was wondering, which do you enjoy more, pre-production, production, or post-production, and why? Um. Probably pre-production because that's when I'm most excited about a project. That's when the project is its best is in my mind before <laughs> I make it. And then you go out uh, to the film anticipation. It. Yeah. And then you go out to film it. And then there's that sinking feeling of like, uh, I know that's not quite what I was trying to do. Hopefully it works out. And then you open up <laughs> the edit and it's like, okay, how do I make this work? How do I make this work? <laughs> And, um, and then by the time it's done, you've worked with it enough where it's like, okay, I'm proud of what this is and I'm proud of what we did, but it's always the beginning when it's in your mind where the film is, you know, at its peak, you're like, oh, this is going to be so sick. It's going to be, you know, (laughs) so yeah, probably as far as like my mental state, definitely pre-production is that, is that I'm at my best. Uh, all right. Well, which director do you admire for their technical skill? For technical skill, I'd have to go with David Fincher. He's just so specific about his vision. You never question that he knows exactly what he wants to see Mm. from the beginning. And he's willing to go as long as it takes to get that vision. But even watching behind the scenes, there's no like hemming and hawing of like, um... I don't know what we should do here, but it's more like he's thought about it all from the start. And so, and also, I mean, I really like his approach visually as well, especially Gone Girl and Zodiac. So yeah, big fan of David Fincher. Well, so my next question was going to be the same, only instead of technical skill, artistic vision, but it sounds like Fincher might be the answer to both. Or do you have one specific? I do like Fincher's artistic vision as well. Oh, and Seven. I forgot to mention Seven. Mm, Yeah. But for artistic vision, I'd also mention Denis Villeneuve, probably. Uh, Oh, God, yes. (laughs) I really love... God, yes. Yeah, especially Prisoners. It's one of my favorite films. And recently, some people don't like it, but I loved Dune. Like, the tone and the editing and the cinematography in that film are just so awesome. I would agree. uh, yeah. yeah, that was definitely one of my favorite films. It wasn't last year, it was the year before last year. And I was just so impressed with his vision and how he approached it. 
And also working with Greg Frazier, who was the DP for Dune, and he did like the Batman, and he's like super, super talented DP. So he's also worked with Roger Deakins on Prisoners and like Blade Runner. And so he definitely knows what he's doing. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah, I never really understood that. The first Dune was directed by David Lynch, right? Yeah, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but I've met a handful of people that said they liked it. A lot of people said, no, it was too long and it was god-awful. Well, I hear the same thing about the one Denis Villeneuve, uh, Mm -hmm. or Villeneuve, I guess. I always mispronounce his name. Yeah. I hear the same thing. I don't understand why. I mean, yeah, it's long. I understand if you uh, have a short attention span or just in general don't like long movies. I get that. But unless they're conflating the length of a movie being bad cinematography somehow, I don't understand how people don't enjoy that. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) I'm a, yeah, I've heard that from people like it was way too long. It was boring, which is interesting for me because I had the total opposite experience of like, Because I knew it was part one the whole time. I was like, I hope it doesn't end here. I hope it doesn't end here. And then by the time it got to the ending, I'm like, okay, that's a cool spot to leave it off. But yeah, I thought it was super visually intriguing. And the the score was so cool. And so, yeah, it definitely kept my interest the whole way through. And for anybody that doesn't like it, you know, they're just missing out. Well, picture this. I went with some guys from work to see it on IMAX. And at the end, this one guy, his summation of the movie is, well, that's three hours of my life. I'll never get back. I'm like, <laughs> were we just watching the same fucking movie? <laughs> that's funny because like I saw it the day it came out, watched it at home on we have like the 75 inch TV, but it's not a super expensive one. So like the blacks aren't super black, the whites aren't super white. And so we watched it on our screen at home and then. I just knew, especially getting into color grading and stuff, I was like, I know I'm not seeing what I'm supposed to be seeing here. So it was my brother's mm-hmm. birthday, and I um, bought us tickets to go see it in IMAX the next day. And uh, nice. it was kind of a gift for myself. It wasn't really, I was like, hey, you want to come <laughs> along with me? We don't need to tell anybody about that. Was- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, AI has moved its way into printed and graphic art as well as literature. Has it moved its way into any aspect of filmmaking? Um, I definitely know there's stuff you can mess around with in the AI. I mean, like you can ask ChatGPT to write you a script if you want. It's not going to be very good, but it's there. I feel more for the visual artists who are actually drawing art or creating digital art that are getting the brunt of it right now because it's like people are like i don't need you i can just put a little prompt into mid journey but i can definitely see down the line especially when it comes to maybe screenwriting or storyboarding and that sort of thing how ai could make a big effect and possibly be an issue i do know some filmmakers having fun with it though like i saw i think his name is sam evanson um he's a horror film director and he was doing a kickstarter for a horror short film where there's this one kind of entity that keeps showing up no matter what the prompt you put in in um these ai photos i thought that was kind of a cool way to capitalize on this this ai craze is creating a cool concept that people could go watch and be interested in mm. 
Well, where did you learn the craft of filmmaking? And do you make a living in any particular aspect of filmmaking? Well, right now I work full-time as a video editor for a company. So technically, I'm always kind of sharpening the editing skills. And I, I go out and shoot some video for the company as well. But I knew what I wanted to do since I've been like 12. And then it was just finding stuff on the internet and just kind of putting in the reps, filming stuff and seeing what I liked and trying to trying again and then finding what other people were doing that I really liked seeing, finding out as much about that as I could. And so I'd never went to any official school. Uh, didn't go to college for it. YouTube university. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> awesome. Well, a lot of great literature and film was made during COVID and the Black Plague gave birth to the Renaissance. So do you feel like COVID gave birth to a renaissance of sorts in the indie film and fiction world? And if so, can you give some examples of films that you know of that were made during COVID that you particularly like? Well, I think as someone who like mainly makes very low budget, like no budget productions, it was a cool time where everybody was kind of now on the same page where it's like everybody's at home and it's like, well, now either you can chill or you can use this time to make something just with what you got. And so filmmakers like David Sandberg, he started with a short film called Lights Out. That one got made into a feature film. And, but he still, every once in a while, he'll make a short film with just him and his wife and a camera, which I think is cool to keep that kind of spirit of like, just make something with what you have. Like Rob Savage, he just directed The Boogeyman. He made a film called Host during COVID. And that's kind of like over a Zoom meeting. Sounds like it wouldn't be, you know, super amazing, but it's really solid. It was well received and it helped pave the way for his future stuff that he's making now. And so. So the setting is a Zoom meeting or. The he... whole film is revolving around a group of friends that are in a Zoom meeting. Oh, it, okay. So that way it could be shot totally remote. And, um, oh, okay. Yeah. So I think it created a space for cool creative solutions. And so, yeah, I think there was some cool stuff that came out of it. Of course, it's good to be out of it. So that way you can actually collaborate with people you want to and not, um, worry about all the restrictions. But I respected all the people that kind of made the most of it and still kept making stuff. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it was exclusive to France or not, but I had Michael William West on the uh, show and he made a short film, an experimental short film called The Dream Machine. And it was, I think, during the heat of the lockdown, he said you could get a permit. One of the allowances they were making is you could get a permit to shoot a film. Hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, definitely. To my knowledge, there was no film license that existed <laughs> at that time. And I, yeah. it wouldn't make a lot of sense if there was, but yeah. that's funny. Well, I was curious to know, how many movies do you have links to on your website? Is it five? Yeah, I think it's five. Yeah, somewhere in the realm of five. So you've worked with a few different actors and I was wondering, when directing an actor, what is the hardest emotion to properly evoke? I guess I should say when directing an actor, what is the hardest emotion to properly evoke from them? That's a good question. I mean, it 
depends on the actor. Uh-huh. Since I'm mostly dealing with stuff in the horror realm, it is kind of difficult to find the right balance when you're afraid of something and what the level of fear needs to be for that. Because you don't want someone who's like in hysterics when they shouldn't be. But then there's sometimes that they need to get there and it's harder to get there for them. And it's also interesting because with a drama, for example, it's like a scene with a divorce and it's like, okay, well, this happens to people. What reaction would this evoke? But it's like, there's a tall creature coming out of the closet. This doesn't happen to people. (laughs) So we have to figure out what kind of reaction would this elicit. So that's kind of the the strange part of it. But like, especially Adara, who played Annie in In the Dark, because it's difficult. It's the peak of the film and you're walking out in the hallway and anything could jump out anywhere and emotionally have to be ready to get in that space. And then she just pops out of it. Let me say cut. And then so um, I have a lot of respect for actors, especially they're doing horror, because I know that's a tough juxtaposition of how scared you should be looking and how much fear you should be reflecting in your face, how much of it should be internal, that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's kind of a hard balance to strike sometimes. Well, do you think there should be any limits to movie making other than obviously staying within the bounds of the law? And this question kind of comes from movies like Irreversible and a Serbian film. Uh, I'm not familiar with that. What is uh either one? No, I'm not. Oh, okay. Are they like super messed up? Well, Irreversible is by Gaspar Noé and it's got that notorious 9-minute rape scene with uh, um what's her name? Beautiful Italian actress uh Monica Bellucci. Hmm. I had a Serbian film. I think the guy was just trying to be as fucked up as he possibly could. I mean, there's stuff in there that's just like I think if you get on YouTube and look up top 10 most disturbing films ever made with the exception of some very obscure foreign films that I don't even know how you get a hold of I think a Serbian film is usually at the top. <laughs> no. Well, I haven't seen those, but um I do think there should be limits. <laughs> For me personally, like of course everyone was different. Like I saw Evil Dead Rise, which was really well done. Not necessarily my type of horror, like the gore fest type of stuff isn't my type of horror. Or especially recently, there's been like a movie like Midsummer mm-hmm. That kind of capitalizes on the disturbing nature of stuff. It's more of a disturbing film, less of a horror film. And sometimes it feels like creators are more interested in just like how messed up they can be rather than like, let's explore something eerie, let's explore something creepy. And what do I have to put in this? for this storyline to make sense. I feel like that's a decent way to approach it. But uh, some people seem to approach it from like, let's see where the line is and let's see how close I can get to it. Mm. (laughs) And so, yeah, I mean, I haven't thought about it a whole lot, but I feel like there definitely should be limits, especially with assault scenes and things like that. I think if your writer director is writing those into the film that you're participating in, you should probably talk with them and really make sure that there's a complete need for it in the story. It really needs to be there and it would Mm. fall apart if it wasn't there. Yeah. So I feel like there's some lines that probably shouldn't be crossed. I mean, 
I haven't even seen those films, so, and I don't really plan to, but, uh, <laughs> well, I would say steer clear of a Serbian film, but irreversible. I don't know that it's necessary to have a nine minute rape scene, but I think the general idea was to really drum up a, a hatred for this particular person that's perpetrating this crime, not only for the viewers, but for the boyfriend of Monica Bellucci's character. And there's this stark juxtaposition of this horrible sexual assault with the beautiful way this movie begins. And what's crazy about it is the movie begins at the ending and ends at the beginning. Hmm. And the beginning is beautiful, so therefore it ends with a happy ending because it ends at the beginning. Hmm. I think if you watched it, I think the scene I'm talking about would make you physically ill like it did me. But I don't know. I think you might still respect Noé for the way he did it. Hmm. Interesting. But a Serbian film, yeah, just don't, don't bother. <laughs> Um, so what is the most beneficial aspect of filmmaking for you personally? That's a good question. I feel like the core of it is I like creating an experience for people and taking a feeling in my mind and seeing how well I can transfer that and sit in an audience with people and have everyone feel how I was intending them to feel in this moment. So I think that's kind of where it came from is having a creative instinct and feeling like you want to share it and, and see if other people connect with the same things you do. Kind of birthing this thing that exists outside of yourself. Yeah. 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 I've always wondered what that feels like to produce a film and have this creation that didn't exist before, you know, mm -hmm. just, it's like you've created this experience that exists outside of normal space time that just exists of its own volition. Yeah. You know, you can play it, replay it, do whatever you want with it, but it's this alternate reality, this experience that you've created. I've always wondered what it feels like to accomplish that. Maybe I'll have to become a filmmaker before yeah. I die. Yeah. <laughs> Time's running out. I'm an old fuck. I better get started. <laughs> it's never too late. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who was it? Uh, Oh, there was somebody that didn't start making films until they were 50 or something like that. Can't remember who it is, though. I mean, I know I don't remember when Clint Eastwood started directing films. I mean, he was already in films, but then he yeah. started directing pretty late. Uh, can't remember who that was. Anyway. Well, so I have been told that the best skill that a director can have is to be a problem solver. Do you feel like the creativity you use to create a film is the same tool you use to solve problems? Or are you using a much more pragmatic approach when it comes to overcoming a problem like budgetary constraints or something like that? And what are some common problems that you've experienced on more than one film that you've had to put this skill to use? I feel like it is kind of the same creativity of like, we don't have the budget to do this but we still need to communicate this. How do we do it? I feel like it's kind of the same muscle that's being worked in the writing process as well. Um, but like a common thing, just like we were talking about in the beginning is like the hanging scene and my most recent film. And then like in She Knows, I try and find a way that's still effective, if not more effective 
and requires less resources. So for the hanging scene and in the dark, I just didn't show it because, you know, it's a YouTube short film. You only want to go so far with it. But also showing it in real time would require so many more resources than I had available. Kind of the same thing with She Knows, where if I were to show someone actually getting hit by a car, yeah, it's like, all right, all right, now we're talking, this is going to get difficult to pull off effectively. So we're going to have to pull some permits. Yeah. But then it's the kind of thing where it's like people didn't need that. People didn't need to see the dude hanging himself. People didn't need to see the girl getting run over by the car. Just cutting to it and people putting together the pieces, especially with horror. I feel like the less you show and the more you leave to people's imagination, I think it becomes more effective. So I feel like it is kind of the same muscle that you're working of like, I really want to convey this. I don't have the resources to do it the way I'm originally thinking. So let me think of a a different way to approach it. Gotcha. Well, so is there a resource available to short filmmakers that most people don't know about? And if so, can you tell aspiring filmmakers about it? These are kind of random, but I'll say two things. Okay. (laughs) One is a website called Shot Deck, which is a really cool website. It's a whole bunch of film stills that you can pull and you can categorize it down to the specific color that you want, the framing that you want, the lens that you want, just to see, you know, if you're making mood boards, if you're looking for inspiration. And so that's been super valuable because in, you know, pitch decks that I've made or even storyboards where I'm just communicating the framing, whatever it might be. That's been super helpful and seeing the specs about like, okay, what camera is this shot on? And um, what was the focal length of the lens for this one? Because I like how this looks and that sort of thing. So that's been really helpful. And it's just, I think, like 10 or 15 bucks a month. So that's been a big resource. This other one is, you know, a little bit random, but for the no budget filmmakers out there, (laughs) take advantage of your iPhone, not necessarily for shooting, but for recording audio. Even in my most recent film, when I've recorded phone call conversations, I've had them linked up to a lavalier microphone, but I've also had them record on the iPhone as a backup. And I've went with the iPhone audio every time because it just sounds better because it's right by their mouth. And you'll notice I write a lot of phone conversations in my films because it's just easy. It's like just hit record on your phone and I know it'll sound actually decent. People won't know. But yeah, just take advantage of those practical things that you already have, especially if you're working with a limited budget. But yeah, those are two kind of totally separate things, but they've been pretty helpful. Sounds useful to me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Well, so I know you live in Seattle and Seattle has a great music scene. So there's great music scenes with a lot of live venues for local bands to play at. There's great art scenes with a lot of art galleries. There are great literary scenes with bars that have slam poetry nights, bookstores for indie writers. But is there such a thing as a great film scene where there are short films and indie films shown? And if so, can you tell me, is it there in Seattle? Where is it? What's it like? I would say that Seattle has a film scene Definitely more of a video production scene than a film scene, I would say. There's like a lot of video production that goes on with Amazon and, and Microsoft and all that. But um, as far as like narrative film scene, there's not a lot that goes on. There is a group of people that, you know, they're all supportive. 
which has kind of helped me a little bit because the work I've created tends to be viewed more and is a little bit higher quality than some of the other stuff in the area. So when actors want to get involved, we can kind of help each other out, which is like, hey, I have no money, but I want to make this thing. And they're like, well, I want to be involved because this stuff is higher quality and it gets some viewership. And so it's definitely created some opportunities, but I wouldn't say there's like a bustling film scene in (laughs) Seattle, you know, I feel like maybe like Austin, Texas or New Orleans or Atlanta or LA, New York, those types of places seems like they probably have more of a film scene than Seattle does, especially LA and that sort of thing. But um, yeah. Is there such a thing, like let's take your films, for example, is there such a thing as a theater that shows local indie films? Well, there are lots of local festivals for sure that I could submit to. With the film I'm making next, I do want to explore more the festival world because I haven't really done that. But now I'm in contact with people and stuff that have offered guidance of like, okay, here's where you should submit. Here's where the right people are going to be watching. But every film festival says they're, you know, the top 50 and something. And so it's like, okay, (laughs) which one of these is actually going to be like Uh, the move for me? But if you just want to get your film screened, there are quite a few options, especially in Seattle. Okay. Well, this is kind of a technical question. I I like to nerd out every now and then. Which uh, editing software do you use? And is editing something you enjoy or find tedious? Um, The editing software I use is Premiere Pro most of the time. Is that like Adobe? That's Adobe, yeah. But recently, within the past year and a half or two years, I've been getting into DaVinci Resolve, originally for color grading. And now, especially for work, I edit most of the stuff I do in DaVinci Resolve. I think with horror, I do find editing tedious eventually because it's, well, (laughs) one is there's so much sound design required. It's not like a drama where it's just a conversation or something. It's like you have to capitalize on every beat. And also you lose objectivity when you're editing over and over and over. And so that's why you have to show to people and be like, okay, this is my instinct, but I don't really, (laughs) this is not even scary in the slightest. I mean, it's not scary after you shoot it, you know, Uh it's just scary in pre-production. Like we were talking about where it's like, oh, this could be super creepy. And (laughs) then you shoot it and you're like, I think this could be creepy. And then you're in the editing and you're like, I don't even know if this is effective or not. So you kind of lose some of that objectivity, but you have to trust your initial instinct, but it does get pretty tedious i feel like especially if you're editing everything yourself you're doing the sound design yourself if you want it to be the best it can be then it does take a lot of time to be like okay let me get all the foley sounds in here let me get all the ambient sounds in here let me you know so yeah all right well what is the life of spencer keller like outside of filmmaking hmm well i'm married and uh we like to saw your photos, beautiful couple. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I got married two years ago and outside of like my day job, video editing, I play music, go watch movies. We cook a lot. You know, we um, like to find new places to eat. The Seattle food scene is pretty good. There's a lot of really good Asian cuisine, Mexican cuisine here. So yeah, it's pretty chill. I'd say that's how I describe my day to day outside of filmmaking. All right. 
Well, Spencer, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, so as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your viewers know about? I would just, I got to plug my YouTube channel and subscribe to stay tuned because I am working on another short film this summer that I think will be pretty cool and it'll be a step up from my previous stuff. So yeah, nice. just stay tuned there. All right. We all look forward to that. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description and Spencer, thank you again for joining me. Thanks for having me. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday, where I will be joined by a writer of short stories that push the envelope in a way that you've never experienced. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Shadows are calling The curtain is drawn How far we have fallen I'm out on the run Living the violence Die by the sword Deep in the fire That's where darkness is